I'm your host, Jeff Dawson, for another episode of Dawson's Domain, where we cover the spectrum of life's pressing issues and events, from politics to relationships, sports to horror, alternative history to poetry, humor to baseball coaching, and everything in between. Texas. It's August. It's supposed to be, but it has been an extremely mild summer. And anyone who says otherwise is just stupid. I mean, I think we've probably had a handful of hundred degree days, which is highly unusual, but last two summers, that's kind of the way it's been. The heat has decided to stay in the Northeast and the West coast. Well, they get to endure what we did because I was actually looking at some of my memories from Facebook and from 10 years ago, we were dying for rain. Everyone wants to talk about California, but we were in dire straits too. And when we got it, it didn't stop. I mean, all the reservoirs were filled up, but that was then, you know, weather patterns are cyclical. We've only been watching these patterns for 175 years and I've said it on other episodes. How old's the planet? You go by the Bible, what is it, two to 4,000 years old? If you go by the uh, geologist, the anthropologist, uh, it's millions of years old. So just take your pick. Divide 175 and do whatever you think how old the planet is, and you'll get your percentage. So, yeah, we really don't have a clue. We think we do, but when it comes down to it, we really don't. Well, let's see. Last night, Dunstan's was rather subdued for a change. Jerry, Patty, Wes, Lee, myself were there. Always a spirited discussion of what I couldn't tell you if I had to remember it. But it's it's always engaging and uh, fun. And it's a great place to eat. I'm still working on trying to get a book signing set up with the one at Lover's Lane. I guess I'm going to have to just hit the manager on Harry Hines because it's when you can't get return calls, what do you do? You move forward. That's what you do. And press on. Okay. On this radio show. If you really like the content, like it, share it, tell your friends, have them subscribe because I make my living now doing this, this show, selling books and giving management seminars and speeches. That's how I'm doing it. I got out of construction because it was just too much of a battle every day of trying to get paid, trying to get issues resolved. And that's pretty much what I cover in my management book is how to get things resolved and get people's attitudes changed. And basically just cut to the chase 
we've all been there. We've all heard the stories. We've sat in the meetings that go on and on and resolve nothing except for the next meeting that we're going to start up to discuss the meeting that we had, to plan the meeting that we will have in the future. And when it's all said and done, you don't get a damn thing resolved. And I've got the stats on that on my LinkedIn page where I talk about how people feel about meetings. And uh, it's pretty pathetic what the numbers prove. And they basically say the same thing. I mean, they go from 71% say they were a waste of time to 64% said they could have done something more productive. 63% said the topic wasn't discussed. And 61% basically is, why was I here? Those are, and that was a Harvard study. And that, those that's pretty sad. And there was even an ink study done where over 50% of the people interviewed said the same thing. It's like meetings are not productive. That really needs to change. And I can show you how to do that. I've conducted meetings. I get to the point. I've sat in meetings where they choose not to get to the point. And after we've wasted most of our time and it comes my turn to speak, I get right down to the issue that we were supposed to address. We get it addressed in about five to 10 minutes. And we either get a resolution or I just look at them and say, well, you have wasted our time. And I've done that with several city of Dallas meetings on projects. So, and that book is Cutting to the Chase. I changed the name from Do Your Damn Job because I felt that was a little too harsh for some people. It might upset their feelings. So they might be able to handle cutting to the chase and pique their curiosity. Okay. Book review, Undaunted Courage. This book was given to me by Brian Sanborn, a friend of mine, and he had asked me last week what I thought about it and said I was still compiling my thoughts and I still need to post the review on Goodreads since Amazon is just Amazon and you get zero feedback from those people on why they take all your reviews down other than you have violated our terms and policies. Well, what are your terms and policies? I've read them. None of my reviews broke any of your policies, but you try and get them to respond back. And they don't because they don't have to. They could care less. They really could. Hell, my book, Cutting to the Chase, when I reloaded it, it's the paperback is $7.95, and I don't know how a customer, you can download the ebook, but I don't know how the hell you're going to get the paperback because it's listed at $34.99, of which I brought to Amazon's attention a week and a half ago and sent an email to their author, author central division, which that's just a black hole. Hell, I'm not going to pay $34.99 for a book that's 106 pages, that's a paperback. And I'm trying to get that changed. Right now, the only way I can do it is if you'd like a copy, tell me and I'll order them and ship them to you, which you're going to pay for if I've got to ship it. Or if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I can meet you. We can do the exchange there. But th this is absolutely nuts. Absolutely nuts. But Undaunted Courage. It was 440, 484 pages long. 184 pages could have been 
eliminated. This is a Stephen Ambrose book, and I, I like Stephen Ambrose. Band of Brothers, great book, great series. But uh, this one, since Miriam Lewis didn't always fill in his journal as Jefferson had asked him to do, well, Ambrose has to go back and rely on all of the other people who have written about the Lewis and Clark expedition. Well, they got the same information, their gaps. So they just made up the gaps. And that's what really frustrated me with the book that why are you making this up? Why are all of you quote expert authors making up stuff that you can't identify? And that really upset me for it being a a historical work. But once you get past that, once you get past the opinions, because the speculation at the end about how Clark died is just, I mean, Lewis, excuse me, how Lewis is just, it's all speculation. There are no facts behind it. Well, he could have done this and he could have done that. And you don't know. So why do you have to speculate? You know, that's what sports announcers and weathermen do and women. They speculate. They forecast. And most of the time, unless you've got a high-pressure dome sitting over you, it's a crapshoot. And I've always said, those two professions can be 90, 90% wrong and still have a job. I don't know any other profession where you can do that. But the descriptions, when Lewis did write, and Clark, because they both kept journals, were brilliant. From in, in a land that they had not explored, and no white man, let's be specific about that, for the most part, no white American had been there. Now, the French and the British, they had trading posts coming out of Canada through the Dakotas, Montana, Wyoming, and uh, Washington. But there, no one on the East Coast of the United States really had a clue what to expect when they got there. And the writing is great. When they talk about the struggles going up the rivers and how they had to drag their, their barges and their boats upstream, I mean, it was that those guys were in really good shape to do what they did. The descriptions are great. The, uh, when he talks about the Indian tribes, they met, it was amazing how poor these people were. And they really did (coughs) with the exception of the Sioux embraced the white man because they were bringing them things that they didn't know how to make or they couldn't acquire. They couldn't trade for. So, and that was one of Lewis's biggest descriptions is how, especially in uh, Washington, just how pathetically poor these people were. And, you know, one thing I didn't think about that was brought up was, how rampant venereal disease was in the Indian tribes. And of course the white men caught it too, because that was one of the gifts that some of the chiefs would give was sleep with our women. And some of them accepted it and paid the price. 
and some of them didn't and uh, didn't have any medical issues per se. But overall, like I said, you get rid of that 148 pages and gloss through that and get down to the actual expedition. It was quite a daunting undertaking, and it's well worth your time. Absolutely. Okay, ridiculous comments this week. Well, I always try and get a perspective from all the networks when it comes to this. I mean, I I could fill this whole thing up with some of the things that Dave Raymond of the Rangers says, but it's it's really been nice that Nitwit hasn't been on there in a while. Maybe he's on vacation. He can stay on vacation. I like Dave, Dave Murray. He is trying to call a baseball game. If you just get Raymond to stay focused, we might have a deal. But uh, Courtney Cube, MSNBC, they were talking about on Chuck Todd show uh, the this debacle in Afghanistan, which if you've watched any of the liberal MSM, they can't cover for Joe. And she was just stammering and stuttering. She didn't know what to say because she was going to have to go after Joe and his pathetic, incompetent administration. And all she could do was stutter. And Chuck Todd had the same problem because whatever platform he was pushing, his all of his guests disagreed with him. And he just kind of sat there like, well, I don't know what to say now. Well, you just exposed yourself in that you're not a news organization. You're an opinion organization like the rest of them. And you have been for a long time. And when it comes to opinions, I want to bring this up real quick. Because I saw a man the other day where it was the Taliban was at the provincial palace. They've taken it over. And then a man below it showed the, quote, insurrection that Trump instituted on January 6th and said, do you see a comparison? So what this liberal dumbass was getting at was that all of us who supported Trump are members of the Taliban. But then he'd also put up a mem where it was one of Trump's rallies and basically called it a clandemic. And he said, well, that was just in jest and fun. No, you called every Republican a member of the Klan. And then he just ignored it and moved on. But on the July 6th, quote, it was a riot. If it had been an insurrection, there would have been blood all over the place. This is from Military Times. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has found that the January 6th storming of the United States Capitol was not organized by pro-Donald Trump groups as part of a plot to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, four current and former law enforcement officials said, according to Reuters on Friday, more than 507 alleged participants have been arrested since the demonstration, but the FBI believes they are almost all one-off cases and not due to a centrally coordinated far-right effort, nor are they the result of an organized push by then-President Trump supporters. 90 to 95% of these are one-off cases, said a former senior law enforcement official familiar with the investigation. 
then you have 5% maybe of those militia groups that were more closely organized, but there was no grand scheme with Roger Stone and Alex Jones and all of these people to storm the Capitol and take hostages. There you have it. Now that's the Military Times, and I've read many of their articles that my friend Ross Goff has passed on to me, and I think I believe them before I believe anything else. But then if you go and look at your liberal associates and see what they post, well, they just ignore all this stuff because that's what they do, especially when they have been fed all of this crap for four years. Uh, Let's see. Excuse me. Just a minute. I've got to put a phone number in here from somebody. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Numbers. It is 888-627-6008. Yes, that's from Mr. Stewart, who was a guest two weeks ago. If you want to call in, the number is 888-627-6008 or 323-744-4831. And if you have someone that wants to listen to it, it's 631-359-9353. Okay, tell Robert I will be with him in about three to five minutes. Put that in there. Because I do have a guest coming on, Robert Mathis. Uh, So those were ridiculous comments. Texas Rangers. What can we say? Well, Dandy Don would have turned off the lights in July. The season's done. It's over. We're the third worst team in Major League Baseball. We won't catch the Orioles. We won't catch the Diamondbacks. And I don't know what we're going to catch. At least they're still trying to play, but uh, this is a failed bit. Little League Baseball is on. In fact, I'm going to glance over once in a while just to say, I love Little League Baseball. I love baseball. Those of you who watch know I love baseball. And then I have to turn the sound on to listen to the announcers, and that just kills everything like watching the Field of Dreams game last week. If it weren't for the announcers, I would love watching these games, but they just fill up the airtime with absolute useless crap. When is that going to stop? I don't know. I just don't know. I love watching the games. I like watching these kids. But when these announcers start comparing 12-year-olds to major leaguers, that's just a bit over the top. And I will never get over these coaches having their kids throw junk. Period. I just. They're not going to be there when these kids throw their arms out. And I've seen it happen in games. Oh, look at that curveball my kid throws. Blah, blah, blah. And then I watch his arm blow out while he, when he releases a pitch. And his arm falls to his side and there's tears pouring down his eyes. And I'm like, oh, Tommy, Tommy John surgery at 12. Good job, coach. How's that piece of plastic on the mantle serving you? These kids... Just need to throw the ball over the plate. That's what they need to do. That's what they need to do. But that seems to be beyond most coaches because they all want to be, I want to win. I want to win. I want to win. Yeah, but winning should not come come at the cost of losing. 
and damaging a player's arm at all. I've seen it happen, folks, and it's not pretty. And you're just like, okay, he's done. You're going to be around in 20 years when he can't play catch with his kid because you got a little piece of plastic on the mantle? No, you won't be there at all. Okay. I really don't want to rag on that, but it's on right now. It's fun to watch. Just tell the announcers to shut up and life would be good. Okay. Haiti got hit by another earthquake. Everyone's crying the blues. Well, let me bring something up. Remember that uh, hurricane that hit Haiti and the world raised $13.34 billion for aid and somehow Bill Clinton and the Haitian prime minister were put in charge of it. The last I checked, they'd only spent about 40% of that. Where'd the rest of it go? And when you look at these pictures from the earthquake damage, hell, it looks like it did after the hurricane hit it. It hasn't been rebuilt. Where'd all that money go, Bill and Hillary? You tell me and we'll both know. You don't see that on the news, do you? No, because everyone forgot. Biggest scam, one of the biggest money laundering scams in history. And Bill just laughed all the way to the bank. Okay. COVID. I have scheduled to get my shot in September. That was the earliest appointment I could get right now. But I'm still thinking about it. I track those numbers every Saturday, I mean Sunday. You can see it on my Facebook page or on my blog at LDDJEnterprises.com. Yes, the cases are going up. That's a given. I think uh, last Sunday it was a total of 780,000 new cases. But Brazil and Mexico are also getting hit. You don't hear them in the news, but our border is still open. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So we're supposed to all get vaccinated, yet we're supposed to have an open border with refugees coming from across the world with no papers, no identification, being transported across this country all over the place, God knows where. But we that have wanted to see more evidence on the shot are being chastised and crucified and vilified. It's just ridiculous. But they have no problem with all these illegals coming in and they don't even know who they are. So who's the real enemy here? And I hate to use that term, but there is no better term. You're going to make us the villain that live here, but those who come in with no proof of jack shit have, you know, I can't think of the term right off the top of my head, but do whatever you want to. What an incompetent administration. Okay. Well, I don't want to keep Robert on hold. Okay. 
My guest is Robert Mathis. He and I went to Oklahoma State together and studied construction management. He's from Okmulgee, grew up in Oklahoma City. He graduated from high school the same year I did, 78. We were in school together for two years. Then he went into the military, served 10 years, four, uh, four six active reserve in the Marines, was a forward observer attached to firing bat, uh, battery, worked for UPS for 17 years, then went back, got his engineering degree, and now works for a steel fabricator. He's been married twice. I've only been married once, and he has some kids, and he has some grandkids. And one thing that's really interesting about Robert, and Don, you can bring him on, is he is a Civil War reenactor. And I've seen his pictures, and he supports the North. But that's really cool because I've gone to a couple of those. But the reason I asked him on was because of his service and to get his thoughts on where we're at with this fiasco in Afghanistan. And I can't hear him. Is he on, Don? I'm here. There he is. Are you there, Jeff? What's up, Robert? Thank you for the intro. It's been a long time, sir. It has been, what, 30, 40 years? 40 plus years. <clears throat> I mean, we yep. kept up on Facebook, and thank goodness for that, but it's been forever, man. Well, you know, <clears throat> you went off into the military. I stayed and went to school my the one memory I do have is when we were working on the uh, CMS building and we were putting that uh, waterproofing paint on the building. You remember that? Yep. Yeah. And, and you dipped and I smoked and it's like, why do you dip? And you said, hey, moron, because it's got nicotine. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'm pretty stupid. That's all right. But... Uh, <laughs> Those were good times, you know, yes, it, it was a good program. And so, but I am curious because I never understood why did you, uh, I'm not going to say you dropped out, but decided to go to the military instead of school. Well, let's just say that between you and me and the fence post, I was asked to leave. Do you remember Clay Campbell? Really? Well, now, was that from Dean Emmel? Uh, no, it was not from Dean Emmel. That was from Dr. Lawrence Boger, who is president of the university. We made the front page of the Oklahoma City Times in 1980 for throwing water on OU's fan. Really? True story. Well, they needed water thrown on them because they weren't the most Congenial, congenial people to us at times, but no, I was, and, I was asked, I was asking if it was Emil because do you remember Clay Camerer? No. Okay, yeah, he was a year ahead of us. Okay. He, he and uh, his last name was Hubert. I mean, they had a small concrete company while they were going to college, 
and they showed up at a CMS meeting. They'd poured like a 10,000 square foot slab and they'd knocked down a six pack. And it was one of the best meetings we had. And Dean Emmel got really upset with them. And I sat in that meeting going, All right, wait a minute, are you guys upset with what Chris and Clay did? And they said, well, their behavior. I said, we're in construction. We drink beer after pouring concrete. What did they do that was wrong? And that was the oh, first time, you know, that's the first time I saw PC attitudes. And it's like, oh, and that's yeah. when I quit. I, I said, if this is the direction you all are headed, I'm out. This is ridiculous. Because, yeah, they did the same thing. They said, well, you don't need to come to these meetings anymore. And uh, we really don't want you around. But I didn't know that the president, that you got to have a chat with the president of OSU. Uh, yes. Oh, well. So, so you went into the military as a Marine. And where did you serve? Uh, stateside, uh, 29 Palms mostly. I was West Coast, went on deployments. East Coast was uh, second Mardiv. And they're the ones that did Beirut. But I heard a lot of stories, guys from over there. And I was mostly on the West Coast and then deployed on floats. And that was it. They're the guys that did Beirut and Grenada and all that fun stuff. It was over there when the barracks blew up. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. He was there when that bomber broke through the gate and blew that barracks all to hell? Yeah, I was not impressed. We were all wanting to go get some payback, but it's just amazing. But at least, and I didn't know about this at the time. I didn't find out until just like 10 years ago. Ronald Reagan actually accepted full responsibility for that. And that, that impressed me. Whether you like him or not as a president, don't really care. But for somebody in his authority to stand up and say, yeah, I, I accept full responsibility for that, that's pretty impressive. He was, you know, the Iran-Contra Iran deal, he kind of tried to deflect. But what was it, like three months after uh, – Archibald and oh come on who was the top army general that took the blame for all of it you know who I'm talking about remember. but yeah. Reagan came out like three months later or so and he said okay I was wrong yeah I knew all about that deal and then his uh ratings went back up but i liked ronald i thought he was i thought it was a good president he had the best interests of america in mind you know i don't agree with everything a president does but i i still give him high marks oh i agree and you know, that is something we as a nation have lost sight of i believe is is it Neither party, sorry, in my opinion, neither party has America's best interests in mind. I agree 100%. They have their political interests in mind. Yes. Their power and interests and everything else is secondary. Exactly. And if it works out good for me, well, that's just icing on the cake then, huh? 
Yes, Oliver North. That's who I couldn't think about. Oliver North. Yes. But yeah, how do we change that, Robert? You know, I look at this fiasco in Afghanistan and we know the history of Afghanistan. No one has ever held it. No one has conquered it. Everybody leaves. And I'm, I'm even if, if Trump would have pulled out in May, I still think it wouldn't have happened as rapidly. He'd have had a much better collapsing perimeter than what Biden has done. It would have been more organized. We'd have gotten our people out, including those that assisted us, which we know are at high risk. But uh, oh, I know. I still think the I, Taliban would. Do you still think the Taliban would have taken the country, whether it took them three months or six months? Uh, yes. I. The way I look at it is the Afghanis. They're indigenous, obviously, yes. but they don't care. They don't want whatever government the Soviets. The English, the Americans, they don't want that government. They want to live just like they have for the last thousand years, in my opinion. Prove me wrong, but and I'm okay with that. And they don't care. It's like South Vietnam. Look how much we did in that. You know, you and I are the same age. We I are. remember in, in the late 60s, and I asked my mom and dad, you know, am I going to be fighting in Vietnam? Because, you know, every night you see it. And then in 72, it's peace with honor. Yeah, that worked out real well for the South. But to me, it was always going to, I knew from day one, I knew that when we put people on the ground and left them there, that this was going to happen. Because like you said, Afghanistan's never been conquered by an outside force and held for any length of time. And, and I love this argument that seems to be running around that, well, China's going to take over. So, no, they're not. These, <laughs> I, I have a cousin that during the Russian occupation, he was one of the few Americans that had a visa to get into Afghanistan to deal in rugs. He would buy their rugs, bring them back to the States and sell them. And I asked him, Will the Russians ever win? And he said, when hell freezes over, he said, you can't win over there. They own the mountains. They run the mountains. You'll kill, you might kill a lot of them, but you're not going to kill them all. And they know the goat paths. They know the trails. And they're like the Orientals. Time means nothing to them. It takes them 50 years to win. They're willing to spend 50 years, just like the, you know, the North Vietnamese, they didn't care how long it took to take South Vietnam. They knew over time they would outlast the Western imperial powers, and they did. I so, know. this, you know, this and stuff about China that, taking it over, no. See, that's what really annoys me greatly is the fact that I'm not a rocket scientist, and I am at best an amateur historian. But if I can figure out and see the writing on the wall that Afghanistan's never been conquered, so, and especially by a first world military being the then Soviet Union, what chance do we have? None. And then soon, what happened in South Vietnam, as soon as they said, we're going to pull out, 
the writing was on the wall. Writing was on the wall, what, 45 years ago? Yeah, it just took the North Vietnamese two years to rebuild from all the damage that we did to them, sit, sit on that border and then say, okay, so we had a peace treaty. Who cares? What are the, what's, the, what's America going to do? Nothing. We can take this country in two months and they did it. Yep, sure yeah. did. I researched. I go ahead. No, go ahead. You know, I researched that to see how Ford because he was our president when that was falling apart. He tried to get $111 million, I think it was, through Congress so he could at least shore up the South Vietnamese Army because, you know, when we pulled out, we cut off all funding so they couldn't buy ammunition, they couldn't buy fuel, they couldn't buy spare parts for everything we left them. So they're like, well, what are we supposed to do with all this stuff? And... Ford tried to get them some money. Congress said no. And there's a, there was a deal on Facebook floating around that it was uh, Joe Biden that was against it. Well, there was, if you look at the vote in the House, in the Senate, nobody was for giving them more money. And then we saw what that turned into, which was an utter rapid collapse. And yeah. You know, a lot of those people decided to stay thinking the NBA would honor that peace agreement. Boy, when they broke through with their armored divisions, it's like, this isn't going too well. It's time to get out. For a lot of them, it was too late. No, at least, I know. You know, Ford at least had a plan. What, what plan do you see going on right now? None. How does that happen? Well, to me, again, this is only for six years of living, no special training. This administration seems like a giant uh, pinball machine. And the ball just goes where it goes. That's not a good plan. Well, I can't see any rhyme or reason in half the stuff they do. But I will say this. I will go on and say that I'm not going to like the outcome of Biden's inability to have an exit plan, but I am in total agreement that it's time to get us out of there because we do not need one more senseless American death. Agreed. So why didn't we get out when Obama was president and the goal was finally met and, uh, and bin Laden was killed, why didn't we get out then? I that don't was, know. And that I was the these, mission. I, I know. And I hear all these people saying it's, it's Trump's fault. He's the one that lied again. I, About, I haven't really done any research on that. But Obama ran on it for two presidential terms and we're still there. Yeah. How did that happen? money somebody somewhere was raking in money well you know and I I never gave Junior a pass for any of this especially his rebuilding of Iraq I thought that was the biggest waste of money the billions of dollars that he sent Iraq he sent Pakistan he basically just gave everyone a blank check except Americans and it's like what the hell are you doing you know I I forgot the author, but the book was called Kill Bin Laden. 
and it was written by one of the special teams members, and they were listening to transmissions from bin Laden that he was saying goodbye, that it was over, and our military wanted to put troops on the Pakistani-Afghanistan border, and Pakistan said, no, we don't want your troops here, and Junior said, okay, you handle it. And how did that work? So I don't know. I've heard, I've heard several people say that we could have had Bin Laden in the Tora Bora Mountains, and they were supposedly forced to let him go. Well, and that's what that the, may or may not be true. Well, look up that but book. The point is, go ahead. Okay, I will. But if we were going in to get Bin Laden, why do we establish a presence there? For 20 years. I don't know. It, it makes. I mean. And I have a. I do have a dog in hunt. Uh, I've got a nephew. Who if his cutting scores are good enough. He will be a gunnery sergeant. This round of promotions. Very nice. Since, yes. He's been in since 09. He did. At least three. And possibly four tours over in Hajiland, and he got IED twice, uh, both times with fatalities, obviously not him. He has no hearing in his left ear, and towards the end of his second deployment, his mom started drinking, my sister-in-law. Well, I mean, who wouldn't? But, uh, I mean, God Almighty, some of the stories he's told me about they had to have a JAG officer on the radio comm to justify whether or not it was an act of war and they could release ordinance to like the Ford observer, the fact man. And it's like, you don't fight a war that way. And no. you know, how do you compute the cost for my sister-in-law? She was never an alcoholic, but the stress and everything that her and her husband went through, knowing that they have a son over there and the government would throw him away in a heartbeat if they saw that. I don't know. Uh, you know, so what have you talked to him since this evacuation began? No, he is busy. He is on not super secret duty, but he is at Lejeune. My understanding is he is on a security detail that is basically nuclear qualified to where if they think anything's going down, uh, they stop it quickly, I might add. Oh. And he's in charge of a uh, security platoon. That's kind of a high security clearance, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, okay. He, his last duty station was up in uh, Washington State at a nuclear-capable uh, Navy base. And he ran the security platoon there. So it's not like your SPs and MPs at the gate, you know, checking your IDs. These are guys that their whole job is to basically base security. Okay. So let me ask you something, because I got to thinking, you know, Trump did a couple of things that everyone blasted him over, yet... You know, he knocked on Syria's door and hit their air base and said, get your shit together or else. And they calmed down. 
he warned ISIS. He went in, destroyed them, and pulled out. And then we had that skirmish on the Syrian, on the Turkish border with the Kurds, and all of that stabilized. He got in and he got out. Now, what does a guy who hadn't been in politics, didn't serve, I mean, he went to a military academy, but he didn't serve in the military. How does he do this with no blowback? And then we get these professional politicians and these three and four-star generals that have been there much too long, and they can't seem to figure it out. How does that happen? I, I don't know. Am I reading that correctly? Yes, you are. And that's like the general who said, there is nothing that I read or studied about this that I foresaw, you know, the collapse this quickly. Well, does that mean you saw a collapse? I mean, or did you not study our history? How in the world are you a four-star general and you don't know? Never mind. No, you're you're on the right. That on the air. Uh, that's fine. You're on the right track, and you don't get censored on this show. I just I, it fail, words fail me. I mean, you can be the biggest lib in the world and still have common sense. I have a son that way. I'm sorry, he's a huge liberal, and we cannot talk politics. But he does have common sense, and he listens to common sense. Well, I'll give him credit for that. At least he will listen. Yeah. Whether I mean, and when I say he's a liberal, he's more about saving the planet and you know free college as opposed to leftism socialism. But he's all for you know advancement of living conditions and things like that. Not not necessarily. Uh, a socialist agenda. Okay. Have you asked him, you know, we had a president that passed legislation that was supposed to uh, eliminate poverty and that was LBJ. Is, is he aware that we've spent 15 to 18 trillion on the war on poverty and uh, we haven't put a dent in it? Oh, are you, are you talking about where the percentage of people living in poverty is still the same since 1964, the Great Society? Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. And remember, oh, LBJ yeah. said it wouldn't cost the American taxpayers a penny. No, not when you borrow yeah. against Social Security, it doesn't. No, That's it how doesn't. He- but it did do one thing. It created more drug havens in the United States than any other president before and after. Look at how that public housing turned out. Oh, it turned out great. I thought I it turned out out. I'm, oh, sure yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you've got a reservation, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, I mean, hey, you know, a little rehab work here and there, it'll be livable. <laughs> so now, now, when are you moving to South Dallas? Because uh, I'll be there to bring you a uh, housewarming present, a bulletproof uh, vest, if you need it. No, I don't need one. We have, I'm, yeah, we're, we're covered. Okay. <laughs> now, I and, really want. Yes. 
go ahead. I want to get into this because I actually did an article. I don't know if you saw it last year where I did it on the North and South because this guy was waving the stars and bars when they were in the Capitol. And I said, okay, that's enough. You are a civil war reenactor, which you have to deal with those that wear the gray of the South. Now, well, I've, I've been to a few of those and how, how well do you guys, how do well does the North and the South interact at those recreation reenactments? Most of the guys that you see waving the stars and bars have about as much historical knowledge and care for what really happened is, I mean, just, they have zero. Most of the, and the reason, here's the reason why I chose blue, is after my stint in the Marine Corps, I cannot in good faith and conscience, and this is just for me, this is, That's, you as a matter to... of fact, I'm the only person, well, I'm the only person I know that feels this way, but even raising an antique weapon that will not fire a live round against the flag of the United States, I can't do that. So that is why I chose blue. Okay. It's, and I'm not an uber patriot. As a matter of fact, I do not like to be called a patriot because to me, it has a negative connotation. Interesting. Because you see people, well, you see people waving the stars and bars at the federal capitol and, oh, he's a patriot. No, he's not. He's a dumbass. Okay. So, but as far as reenactments go, there's good and there's bad. Uh, with the political climate the last four years, we're pretty much on hiatus. They still do it, but it's not like it was back in the 90s. And after reenactment, the guys from the north, the guys from the south, they used to have dances. We get together and interact and, uh, you know, dance with, and it was period dancing where the men wore gloves or a handkerchief and never touched the skin on a woman, just like it would have been 160 years ago. Okay. And it was all prim and proper. And we'd sit around and drink beer, mostly, out of the period <laughs> tin cups and, uh, you know, have a good time. It was, and we discussed. Well, you know, General So-and-so was a total buffoon and moron, which is why the South lost. And, you know, well, General Mortimer Snurd on the north, he cost us the whole Peninsular campaign and all this. And we just sit around and talk about that. As far as, like, modern politics, I would venture to say most of us would lean towards the, the federal government doesn't have a stinking snowball's chance in hell of riding this train. But most of us also believe that both political parties in this country will get you to hell. Democrats will just get you there fast. Okay. Now, so, I mean, go ahead. On the reenactments, uh, I mean, I'm not that... I've read a lot more in the last five years on the Civil War, but I guess what amazes me is 
do you see a correlation between the current our current administration and what Lincoln had to deal with? Because that first two years of the war, our generals couldn't until Gettysburg really get their fight their way out of a paper bag. They lost just about every battle except uh, the first one McClellan fought, but when he showed up, the South had already left. But uh, I, you know, there's a large part of me that, and I, I feel like I've studied enough history to know that the United States, and in this case, it would be the North, always inherits a war they're not prepared for. Whether they want it or not, it's totally immaterial. They inherit wars they're not prepared for. And getting mobilized and getting men to the front and getting competent leaders, we usually, it looks really grim. I mean, look at 1942 and World War II. We were almost ready. The Navy left the Marines stranded on Guadalcanal, and they were about to just disappear and become gorillas in the woods well the jungle in that case until things got better and until the, the country and i don't mean the political aspect i mean the country as a whole got behind it got the logistics ironed out and got competent people in charge america took a beating oh yeah you, like you said yourself the civil war world war ii we took a beating kazarine passed well hello untrained guys they said that the reason that they didn't pull a marine division out of the pacific to invade normandy and they used the first one ashore i think in north africa and sicily first infantry division but the 29th was totally untested because at this point they had realized that sending men in having no knowledge of what they were going to encounter might possibly be a point in their favor because instead of going in with, you know, your butt crack so tight you can't slip an ink pen through it, you know, you got all these guys going in not knowing what to expect, although they've trained for it, and they just do the job mechanically. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've heard about Normandy. So the whole war was a learning curve, and then towards the end we couldn't lose. No, we couldn't. And yeah, that deal at Guadalcanal was, well, I mean, when you look at our Navy at that time, we were still, you know, nursing our wounds and the INJ was still a hell of a lot stronger. But yeah, we they the Navy did. They ran away because yep. we'd already had what well, we had the... Uh, I forgot the name of the battle where we lost five cruisers in a torpedo attack because we weren't aware the Japanese had the long lance and man, they were <laughs> wicked torpedoes. Yes, so, they were. And we and only that had was, that was called. Well, funny you should mention that. Do you know what the name of that battle off the books is called? <sighs> no. Well, it's the Battle of Savo Island. Yes. Okay. Savo Island. Most of the most of the people of my pay grade would say it was a battle with a five sitting duck. 
Yes. Yes. And that's what they worked yeah, as. It, it was. They it was, learned early. The, the Japanese learned early. Launch your float planes at night, get them behind the American Navy, and drop flares. Perfect silhouette. Yes. You know, I'm just saying, at night fighting, up to probably 1943, they had no superior. Well, they started losing a whole lot of planes, too, when we started, you know, our armament started coming out and we could at least <clears throat> number wise start competing against them and you know men of war being built and the idea of the uh, jeep carrier was brilliant it's like we can make these in like three months versus a full-size exactly. essex carrier in six to eight and right now we need flat tops in the pacific and we need planes and and we need and, pilots and we need pilots so i mean and yeah that's, to, where, that's where the army and navy i don't know what the army was but the navy was the astp and that's actually cordell hall where i stayed at oklahoma state little sidebar here that was opened in i think 43 or 44 and the first students that actually lived there were navy astp students my dad lived there was he in World War II? Yes, he was. He stayed. He stayed in the states. He got a chemist degree, but he went into the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, and they taught him demolition. So he stayed here and taught guys how to blow stuff up. Well, that's like my uncle was a civil engineer going to work for his master's. Because back during the Depression, he said, "God dang, the engineering degree." He was a civil engineer. He goes, "You couldn't even get a job as a as a chain man on a surveying crew with a degree back in the depression so the family had enough money well world war ii came out and it's like we're not going to send a graduate degree civil engineer overseas so he stayed here and uh developed bases which i'm sure that was still a good job because you got a choice yeah. you can build them in the states or you can go overseas in the jungles and uh have fun with that I mean, those well, C, those those CBs, what they did in those conditions, it's it really amazes me how fast they could build an airfield and still protect the perimeter because you know there's sniper fire all the time, and they did not mm -hmm. shirk their duty. They said we got we got planes coming in, and we got to kill the Japanese, even though they're trying to kill us. We got to get the planes in and we'll sacrifice ourselves to win. Exactly. And yeah. I don't, I don't see that anymore. Not from the average well, American. 10 years ago, I went on record as saying that the kids, and I can say that now because I'm 60, the kids that are over fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan are going to be that generation's movers and shakers and leaders. But I don't know where it went wrong. That's a good question. And I know that where we work, we'll hire a veteran, an undegreed veteran, before we'll hire some punk-ass kid 
with a psychology degree. Well, yeah, because you're going to get, as you mentioned earlier, you're going to get common sense with that guy that doesn't have the degree and and wants to work and wants to learn. I mean, that's part of literally tired of eating dirt in their food, tired of sleeping under a deuce and a half in the rain, tired of, you know, you name it. I've, I've fallen asleep standing up. I've fallen asleep on the move. I can sleep even to this day. My wife swears that the minute I start to lay down, I'm done talking because by the time my head hits the pillow, I am out. And I'm still thinking that, you know, I'm still trying to catch up on sleep from when I was in. Right. And it's, it's it's just a big joke. But, yeah, I mean, I've been under conditions that – and I, I'm getting paid, what, $300 ring home for this? <laughs> yeah. But you enjoyed it. Wouldn't I trade mean, it for the world. Ten years. So why did you decide to get out? Oh, I was just spent – I was four years active duty, and then I went to work at UPS, got a wife, got kids, but I stayed in the the active reserve for two more years, and then uh, the inactive reserve, which is you just show up once a year to update your paperwork, and then when uh, Desert Storm came out, we had to go and update our red forms, which is record of emergency data, and they bring everybody in, and I they're sitting there and they go, all of you that are, you know, like out within the last five years that have uh, combat arms experience, you guys, this gets into shooting war and lasts over two months. You guys are going to get called up. Wow, thanks, man. Appreciate it. I've got a writer friend that that happened to that got, uh, he served in Germany. He's our age, but he served in Germany at a Pershing missile site. And when the USSR collapsed and we weren't needed anymore, then he came home and went back into his uh, music career. And then he got called back up and he's got two books on it. His name's Doug Depew, D-E-P-E-W. Big Cardinals fan. Okay, he's- I'll look him up. He's a friend of mine on Facebook and I've read both of his books, but when they got called back up because it was desert storm, they had a whole different attitude with their drill sergeants. It's like, you want us to do what? Uh, Why don't you think about that again? We've done this. We served our time. We're in our forties and you want us to run how many miles with how many pounds of a pack? Uh, Yeah. Dude, that ain't going to happen. You you got it. You know, we'll get in shape as best as we can, but uh, we're not 20 and stupid anymore. Well, we're old and grumpy, and you pissed us off. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, we had a – our unit, our section, had a ruck box from Mount Out, and it, it had the cube size on it, and it had the estimated gross weight on it. So that if we ever had to deploy, that whole thing was full of canned tamales and canned. This is, I was in when we went from sea rats to MREs. Just the very beginning MREs. They were, we called them meals ready to excrete. And that's not too (laughs) much, too much of a bad judgment. 
and this is before they made all the recipes. I mean, literally, we were like us in the Army and anybody who got MREs, we got the first generation, which was, you know, stuff like dehydrated pork patties. Oh, yeah. And, I, oh. and it says, you know, soak it in water and heat up the water. It's like, you got to be shitting me, dude. I'm out here in the middle of the desert under tactical conditions. So you eat it like a dried up piece of toast. I'm just saying. But so we all had like canned peaches, fruit cocktail, all this stuff. Out of box, you know, they knew, but they looked the other way. We all had stuff like that. And it's like you said, you know, my pack weighed 80 pounds. But everywhere I went, I went in either a 151 or first generation Humvee. Now, it didn't bother me. But you tell me I'm going to start humping with the grunt? Screw that, buddy. I've already done it. Been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, then, you know, you've been in, and you get a second lieutenant who is, I swear to God, the most dangerous thing in the world, at least in field artillery, is a second lieutenant with a map and a compass. And they go, well, Sergeant Mathis, what do you think we should do? Well, sir, I'm pretty sure that I can get us out of this. I'm not so sure that I can with your help. So, and he just stared at you like, what do you mean? It's well, like, that's like we're in the middle of a tactical field exercise. And we had a second lieutenant who never should have been in the Marines and who was a deer in the headlights. I swear to God, a deer in the headlights. He was always like five minutes behind the curve. That's not good and as a leader. No, and we're out tactical situation full dark and i'm sleeping under a deuce and a half because i was section leader so i got my place of choice so uh i'm sleeping under a deuce and a half he comes and he wakes me up tries a flashlight true it did have a red lens on it so it ruins my night vision i cry and he goes sergeant Mathis, we have to wake up the men well hi sir he goes i can't tell you and i said well, sir, I'm not waking the men up at zero three in the morning on your orders when there's nothing, you know, what are we supposed to do? Well, I lost something. so We have to go find it. And I said, well, what did you lose? And then he goes, well, I can't tell you that either. And I said, so you want me to go wake the guys up so we can go hunt for something that we don't even know what it is we're looking for. And then he goes, well, I lost my pistol. His what? Yeah, he lost his sidearm. What a dumbass. Uh, yeah, that, that word, of course, I prefaced it with sir. <laughs> I didn't call him a dumbass. But I called the, the action pretty if and stupid. So what the, were you thinking? Because, well, I don't know. But I can't find it anywhere. And it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Now, and I had to go wake the guys up because they'll shut down a base for crap like that. You don't just lose a weapon and everybody goes home. So come to find out, he didn't leave the weapon with me or with the armor when he had to go to a battalion and staff meeting back in the rear. So he just rolled it up in his web belt and shoved it under the front seat of the Humvee. And forgot that he had done that. He was gone very shortly after that. That's a good thing. 
Yeah. How did, how did he get to officer training OCS school? I don't. I told the skipper, Captain Hubbard, I said, sir, Second Lieutenant H is going to get somebody killed. And I'll be damned if that's going to be me. And he started laughing. He goes, yeah, I know. He goes, it's already in the works. So he just got transferred, lateral move, you know, cooks and bakers school, something like that. I don't know. Don't care. It's scary to think that someone like that could actually be in charge, you know, be a general in our army. It's like that little weasel that uh, tried to pull the Russian investigation on Trump. That little lieutenant colonel with the bright, cheery red cheeks. I oh. can't even think of his name. Hind- Lindemann? Yeah. Hindelman? Yeah, I know you're talking about. Yeah, that little weasel. Gosh, I just wanted, you know, I don't understand. How in the world did we win World War II? Or how would we win it now if we not only had the people we have here with the selfish attitude they have and the press and the politicians that rat each other out in a heartbeat? We don't. We wouldn't win it because they have the opinion, you know, I don't know if you've watched the movie with Gary Oldham, Darkest Hour, and it showed the political pressure that Churchill was fighting with uh, Chamberlain and Halifax and how they were trying to appease the Germans. Well, the people today would do the same thing. Oh, we can make peace with Hitler and he'll honor that peace like the North Vietnamese honored their peace. And then when the swastika goes up over Washington, D.C., they'd be going, what happened? Oh, yeah. I guess they didn't listen to us. You think? Churchill, if you haven't seen that movie, it's really good when it shows all the, I mean, Churchill was standing by himself. Even uh, King George was scared of Winston until he realized if we fall, there's nothing left of Europe. And... Do we want to be under Herr Hitler's boot? Yeah, that's what it would have been. But there were, you know, that's why Hess flew to England because he knew there was a group that were sympathetic towards Nazi Germany. Of course, that didn't work out well for him because he got arrested when he landed. But (laughs) Churchill, Churchill knew who the enemies in parliament were and who were sympathetic towards Hitler because they were afraid, well, we're going to lose our power if Germany invades England and we fall. So we want to uh, pick our side now. Yeah, that happened to the United States. We don't win. I mean, with Pearl Harbor, hell, the people today, over half of them would say, surrender, give in give up it's not worth it okay okay good good luck yeah. in those concentration and work camps well that's like i have another son who's an uber live and he does want the huge socialist yeah i mean 
He can't even start the lawnmower. My son, I can say this. He can't even start the lawnmower and mow the lawn correctly. But by God, he wants to go start a socialist revolution somewhere. And so I told him, I said, here's the deal, son. And you're not going to want to hear this. But say the U.S. falls tomorrow and we're suddenly socialist. Dude, I'm an engineer. They're going to have two things for me to do. Knuckle under and enjoy the new system and be a good boy and you'll be an engineer or I'm going to get liquidated. Either or. Simple as that. Yes. You, on the other hand, you, on the other hand, have zero marketable skills. You have zero education. And I told him, I said, when they need people to work in the field and the sweet streets and everything, who do you think they're going to get? Your dad with a degree in engineering or you that has no marketable skills? Shut up, man. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like, son, you need to read some history on what I'm talking about. I know. Man. They don't want to. You know, and, and the one thing, there, there's a movie that I tell a lot of people to watch if they haven't seen it. And that's Dr. Zhivago. You want to see how great communism is? Watch that movie and you get to see exactly how it works. And if you, you either comply with the state or have something to offer the state, and if you don't, you go to a gulag because you are a drag on the economy. So we're going to put you in a camp and you're going to work and you're probably going to die and we really won't care. Yep. Three anecdotes about Soviet-style luxury, if you will. Some are quotes by Stalin. One of them is my favorite, seriously, even though he's a loon, xenophobe, whatever, is paper will abide with anything the pen puts to it. And that's got quality phrase. Also, he said, what, food is like humor. Not everybody gets it. <laughs> yes. That's that is and, very true. Yes. And I've read probably one of the few people that have read A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich and the Gulag Archipelago, both by Solzhenitsyn, which are eye openers into the way the Soviet Union actually works. And I have read, I remember when uh, the Gulag Archipelago came out, but uh, I never got that. I heard good things about it, but I'll, I'll throw this in there. I have a friend who was born in Armenia. No, he, he was born in Beirut, grew up in Armenia, and actually served in the Soviet Army under the USSR and got out. And listening to him is really enlightening on what it was like to be on that side of the fence. Oh yeah. Another book you should read if you ever get a chance by Victor Suvorov called the liberates. It's, it talks about an officer and what all they have to put up with in the Soviet union. And he defected because he was afraid if I remember, I do phrase it. We were all going to mutually assure destruct each other. Okay. 
but yeah, those are on my reading list. Okay. Well, I'm always looking for but, something new and educational. Yeah, it's like my kids, they don't even, and, you know, other than being lit, that's like my son's like, we should have never dropped the atomic bomb on Japan. Like, dude, you have no fucking clue what you're talking about. No, he has no clue. And I got to do that with a, when I substitute, substituted and broke an arrow, I posed that question to those kids. And the first one was how many of your parents or grandparents served in World War II? And most of them raised their hand. Okay. How many were served in Europe? How many served in the Pacific? And uh, I said, okay, we don't drop the bomb. 70, uh, 75, I just kind of said, okay, this amount of the class go to that side of the room. And that left maybe 15%. And I said, you're the only survivors because their parents, their fathers and grandfathers died invading Japan. Yep. And they just stared at me like, yep. what? I said, you're all dead. You, you don't, you're not dead. You were never born because your fathers and grandfathers are still on the islands of Japan. And they just looked at me. And there was probably one or two that still said, we shouldn't have done it. And I said, well, you're outnumbered now. These 75% who thought we shouldn't have now agreed, oh, I wouldn't be here. That's right. You would not be here. Because yep. you know, the only estimates were for the first island of uh, Honcho that we were going to suffer half a million in casualties what about the main island yeah we didn't they didn't talk about that it's like god this is going to be a horrible yeah. bloodbath but you and know coach ray who was uh the baseball coach in shawnee was in second marine division which was slated to go in in the initial invasion and he said it was really depressing because we all thought we were going to die First yeah, off. and second off, even scarier than that is, is that when the main invasion of Japan came, like six months later, there was no Second Marine Division to be used in it because it had been ground down. Yeah, it would have been. I'm so glad and, that. Oh yeah, well, and it's like my biggest rejoinder to these morons is. is why don't you go look up the night of March 9th and 10th, 1945, and tell me what happened in Tokyo, and tell me what the casualties were, and tell me how that would have been so much better than being gone in a millisecond with an atomic explosion. Yeah, that was... So, yeah, the firebombing. You know, that firebombing of Tokyo, Dresden, and Hamburg, those were devastating. Yes. But, you and, know... I would, I would have much rather been walking on my way to work and be a shadow on the wall in that millisecond than literally, I read somewhere in one of the books, one of the concrete buildings that was not consumed by the fire, although everything around it was, had a swimming pool that people crowded into and they all boiled a lot. Yes. I mean, that's got to be fun. And I told him, you know, just more people died in that than in either one of the atomic explosions. Sorry. Not yeah, 100. 100,000. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like if you they, if you read the accounts of Dresden, 
you know, you don't think about it, but they had asphalt streets back then. And that was one of the things they talked about was people were fleeing out of their homes, but the asphalt had already liquefied and they got stuck in it. I know. And burned to death. And it's like, what what a horrible way to die. Just, yeah. yeah. He needs to he needs to read some history and bone up before he opens his mouth about well I don't think didn't ask you to think read this and then yeah. give me your thoughts on it because this is what it's like son and is that what you want to go through and then look I mean, at how much Hiroshima and Nagasaki have flourished after being wiped off the face of the map just like all the cities in Germany. There was nothing left. Look at them now. I know. Have you ever seen the movie The Mouth That Roared? I don't think so. It's a comedy. It's about some little hypothetical country in Europe that finds themselves broke. And so they declare war on the United States with the thought that there's no way they can win. And they're going to lose, and then the United States is going to come back in, rebuild them, redo the infrastructure, and they're going to have money out the wazoo. And it's did, that come, did that come out in the eighties? Uh, I don't know. Because what you're, it sounds familiar. Peter Sellers is in. It sounds but familiar. But it's just what a concept: go to war with the United States and lose, and then you're set for life. Yeah, and they'll rebuild us. Yeah. Okay. So I do have one question, and I'm old. And if I don't ask you your opinion on this, I will forget. It's on the subject, but not really. Do you think, given all that you've read and all you've heard, that we knew that Pearl Harbor was going to be attacked specifically as it was? Yes. Not. We were expecting attack like, you know, January, February, March. I'm talking about the first part of December. Yes. And exactly. Okay. I am convinced. And you base that on? I base that on our carriers. I agree. Our carriers are not there. What we really? have at Pearl Harbor, we've only got one modern battleship at Pearl. All the others are World War One relics. But it's all we've got because, you know, once we have war, we gear down. We don't build anything new. We just kind of keep the status quo going. But Roosevelt is sitting in his office in an isolationist country. Churchill is begging for help. He's looking at the map. The Germans have all of Europe. They've got three-quarters of North Africa. Well, they got half of North Africa, and there's this line in Russia that's going from Leningrad to just south of Moscow down to Odessa that's got the swastika on it. The rising sun is over half of China, and we're not in this fight. And if we don't get in this fight and England falls, what's going to be our stepping stone to take on Germany because we will have to fight either Germany, well, it, Germany and Italy. And guys, we got to get in this fight. And the only way I know 
for us to do this is to let the Japanese attack us, and that will infuriate every red-blooded American, and we will no longer be isolationist. I can declare war, and I can get us in this fight before the fight comes to our shores. Uh, the only the only thing I can add to that are two points. In doing research, not not research, just reading about Pearl Harbor, all the battleships will go to undergo a major inspection on Monday, and most of the bo- double bottoms were open. So you're going to have massive flooding from even a single torpedo hit. And even yes. more so is you're gonna you're gonna tell me that we couldn't crack the Japanese code, had no clue, and yet by June, well actually April, May, we knew about midway. Yeah. And like you said, no carriers. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was a and we'll probably never know, but I have zero doubt that that's exactly how that went down. And it's you know Yes, we lost 2,400 men and women and civilians in that attack, but how many did we save? Because, you know, some people have said, well, we could have met the Japanese on the high seas. And I said, if you thought Pearl Harbor was bad at that time, none of those ships come back. We lose the entire, we lose not just the ships, but all the sailors and officers of those ships because there would have been nothing left of us. They were much more no. superior in tactics. It wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been like the Battle of Midway where they just got too they outsmarted themselves and made the a, a task too complicated. Those six carriers would have just flattened anything. I mean, no one comes back. Hawaii falls. No. Midway falls. Uh, no, I agree. So yeah. Japanese, yeah. as far as aerial, meaning delivery of ordnance via bombers was, and torpedoes. Yeah, superior and to us in 41. Their fighters and their gunnery, we had nothing. Plus, all their battleships were more than a match for our old battleships. Oh, hell yeah. Their heavy cruisers could take I mean, out our battleships. Yeah, they could catch up to them and then just slug it out. But yeah, no, I, I agree. It was yeah. That was a, and I'm just right. wondering because I try to tell people that, and they go, "No, they would have ever done that." Yeah, right. Well, that's right. Like I said, I asked them, "Put yourself in the White House with the situation map of the world up there, and show where the swastika is, show where the rising sun is, and tell me we don't need to get into this fight." Because I asked my parents this: if the Japanese don't attack Pearl Harbor on December seventh but initiate all of their other conquests, Southeast Asia, the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, Guam, uh, uh, what's the other island I'm thinking of? Do we go to war over that? And my dad just stared at me like, what? And I said, they don't attack Pearl Harbor. Do we go to war? There's no answer. I don't know. Well, there's no answer to the question. Do we go to war over a United States protectorate, the Philippines? I don't know. Uh, seems like we did an awful lot of dying to protect it, though. But, you know, 
do we actually go to war over that? You know, my folks couldn't, no one can answer that question, but it's like, we weren't geared for it. Has the, has Japan really attacked the United States proper? No. Would Congress institute a declaration of war? That's hard to say. Yeah, very yeah. hard to say. I, but fortunately, they did. And yes, there they those did. Of us who believe we, we let it happen. We had to get into so, the fight. I mean, yes, we did. Even you know, even though England had survived the Blitz. There's still, you know, the U-boats are sinking everything, trying to starve Great Britain out, and they're doing a real good job of it. If we don't get in this fight, what are we going to do? Uh, I mean, it's us against no, the world. Well, yeah, what, what that really you know, that have left us. What I love the most is for Germany declares war on us. What a stupid move on Adolf Hitler. What a stupid move. Lucky for us, he was stupid. Yeah, I know. That opened the door that Roosevelt was hoping for because we can't declare war on Germany. They haven't attacked us. But, you know, Hitler did that because they had the tripartite pact between him, Italy, and Japan. And we got to support our ally. Well, Adolf, you just signed your death warrant. Good job. <laughs> well done. You know, well done. Well, Robert, I have really enjoyed catching up with you and discussing this. It has been a lot of fun. I really enjoy speaking with a, a like mind. Who doesn't well, think I'm just way out there? No, you're not. We're just trying to get more of us to, you know. Too bad bad nobody listens. Nobody listens to me. Not even my wife. (laughs) Well, okay. When you said I do, you knew that the reasoning just went out the window, right? Wow. She's looking. She's giving me that face like that shouldn't have been a surprise to you. (laughs) (laughs) it's been great talking to you jeff absolutely robert and uh i'll find a way to get all we need to go out and have a beer and a pizza we can do that because what you're up in uh little elm or frisco uh little elm correct where are you at uh i'm off of 183 in rigor row dallas that's not bad. Oh, we'll have I, fun. We'll make it a deal. I do have one other question. You okay. posted you posted the video. We're both railroad aficionados. What was it like watching Big Boy chug down those tracks? It's incredible. And I'm going to preface the rest of my answer by saying 27 years ago, I actually rode behind the Challenger, which is the next step down. It's the 4664 that is, used to be live steam with UP, and they've since retired her and done the big boy. And that was incredible because we hit, we rode from McAllister to Fort Worth, and somewhere out in the middle of southeastern Oklahoma, we hit 65 miles an hour. And 
she was pulling 17 heavyweight cars and the rescue engine and two auxiliary tenders, just like this one was. And she was just chomping at the best. And when I saw that one go by, just that much power pulling those cars with what appeared to be to me zero effort was just, you got to be kidding me. And what a lot of people don't realize is they had to develop that. Baldwin had to develop that engine because it's the only thing that could get over the Continental Divide and carry all the troops and arms that were being built to keep moving it across the United States. Yeah. And another little-known fact is, is that the Union Pacific used them, I think, the Wasatch Mountains in Wyoming and Utah up until the early 60s. Really, I didn't know that. Yes, not as a not as a backup, just in case diesel fails. But this is our standard engine we're running every day because diesel technology hadn't caught up to pure power, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, I, I was in awe. It was. If I hope it's not, but if it was a once in a lifetime thing, so be it. It was great. Very cool. Well, yeah, I do look forward to getting together. Yes, I do too. It will and be a good time. Let's not make it 40 years, okay? Uh, I don't think if, let's see, we'd only be 101, 102. Uh, yeah, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll try and do it before that. It be a burden to my kids. <laughs> That's a so pleasant care, Jeff. Thanks for having All right. me on, man. I you too, Robert. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, that was a good college friend, Robert Mathis. And we covered a lot of the stuff that I have notes on. But there's, if you watched Biden's last press conference, where he said this was the biggest airlift in history. I don't know who does his research for him. But uh, they obviously forgot about the Berlin airlift. They forgot about the hump during World War II. And the, with the drawdown that Nixon had for our troops in Vietnam. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, from 48 to 49, there were 277 flights to keep the West Berlin open and keep those people alive because the Soviets had shut down everything. They shut down transportation. They shut down fuel. They shut down food. Nothing came in or out. The only way to do it was through the air. And Truman bucked up and said, we're not letting West Berlin fall because you have to go back to a map to see that they were surrounded in the Russian zone that had been agreed to. And if we would, if Truman wouldn't have stepped up and sent these planes in and these supplies, Berlin would have fallen because these people would have starved to death. And the hump <clears throat> was another rescue effort of the United States keeping the National Chinese Army alive to keep fighting the Japanese. We lost over just under 600 planes and 1,700 pilots and crew in three years supplying 
the Chinese to fight the Japanese. So for his people to say, this is the greatest airlift in history, this is the biggest debacle in history. And Robert and I touched on this about North and South Vietnam. For those who don't remember, there was a peace treaty. Kissinger helped get it. Well, then a lot of the people that worked with us and were our allies during the Vietnam War chose to stay in Saigon. It took the North Vietnamese two years to rebuild their army because we had knocked the hell out of them. They did it in two years. The Russians helped them. The Chinese helped them. And when they invaded, it only took them two months to take over the country. But at least Ford was putting a plan together to help get our people out. That is not the case in Afghanistan. This is the biggest failure of our military leaders and the office of the presidency. There is no commander in chief. Maybe the commander in Duff or something. And, and let's talk about vacations for a minute. I had to look this up. So Joe wants to go on vacation and go to Camp David while all of this is falling apart. Well, what did FDR do during World War II? Up until the war, he had his vacations. Now, you got to remember, travel was a lot different back then. Air was in its infancy. Train was the main mode, and Roosevelt does have polio. Well, he would do fishing and hunting trips, but when the war started, the only place you can find where he went was Warm Springs, Georgia, because that's where he thought those spas would help heal his polio affliction, which we know it didn't, but it was still a working visit. And then when you look at the traveling Roosevelt did <clears throat> from 41 to 45, <clears throat> and you think of the time it took to travel to Europe and the Crimean and North Africa is really a phenomenal feat for a man that was in his physical condition. Joe Biden can't hold a candle to him. He's, you know, he made that comment that I'm responsible and the buck stops here. You are not Harry Truman. You are an embarrassment. That first conference, you just walk out. The buck stops here and I'm responsible. No one else walked out, but you did. And then this last conference you had, wasn't any better. Why do you have to have pre-picked reporters? In the last one, I really got to question it, it. I guess this is why it took them 35 minutes to get this thing underway. Is that Biden goes, well, I thought the question was after the reporter asked it. So it's like, so they're having to submit their questions beforehand. So then they can decide who he calls on. This is not governing. You might not have liked Donald Trump, 
person, and I've made it several times. Personally, I wouldn't drink a coffee with, coffee, coffee with the son of a bitch unless I knew he was paying. But he made decisions, as Robert and I talked about. He knocked, he gave Syria notice. He bombed their air base. They shut up. He took out ISIS. They shut up. We pulled out. We had the skirmish between the Kurds and Turkey. It's shut down. So where is Biden? World War II had dug out dug. 2021 has bunker Biden. I have my own opinions of Douglas MacArthur because he had the largest military and the largest air force when Japan attacked us and he squandered it all. But we couldn't let him fall into Japanese hands. He was a personal friend of the Roosevelt. So we've got to get dug out. But if you read the history, he did stop. The Navy stopped Japan from invading Australia in the Coral Sea. And you see that in the movie Midway, the remake that came out two, three years ago. Doug invaded New Guinea. Doug wanted to take the Philippines back because he said, I shall return. But Nimitz and his staff said, we don't need the Philippines. It doesn't fit into the plan. Well, but pull, Doug's pull, he convinced Roosevelt that he needed to honor his agreement. Now, it did turn in to some of the most devastating defeats the Japanese endured in the air and on the sea because it finally drew all of that fleet, what was left of the fleet, out to battle. It's hard to say what would have happened after that. If we wouldn't have invaded the Philippines, yes, they would have starved on the vine. But how many more Filipinos would suffer at the hands of the Japanese? So we can go through the humanitarian part of it. But where, what would the Japanese have done with their fleet? Would they have kept it around the home waters and waited for our fleet? when it hit Iwo Jima or Okinawa and just had this massive suicide attack. That's all speculation. And you know, I don't live for speculation. It's some, one of those armchair things you can think about. And, you know, this deal about we're having a G7 meeting with all the leaders and no leader has criticized me. We'll take off the earmuffs, Joe. And tell that to your staff, too, because our allies, you thought, you liberals who thought Trump was an embarrassment, we have no support from our allies. They are criticizing because they were, they had troops in there. And Biden just pulled the plug. And now we're having to go back and reestablish a perimeter and hold the Taliban back and try and get our people out. This is the biggest disaster ever and the humanitarian cost is going to be off the wall 
And if anyone still supports Joe, you're just incompetent. That's all there is to it. Our border is still wide open. I already talked about us being, those of us who haven't had the shot, being vilified for it and criticized and everything else. But it's okay to let hundreds of thousands of people come in and don't know what their status is. That's just, this is incompetence. And I've heard the debates of impeach him. Who's going to impeach him? You've got to get at least 12 Democrats and all Republicans to even get it past the House of Representatives. And then it's going to go to the Senate. Well, you got to get at least, you got to keep all the Republicans on board and get Manchin and Cinema to flip and agree with this. Because if it's 50-50, we know how Harris is going to vote. It's going to be just like the two impeachments with Trump. It passed the House, it's going to die in the Senate, of course. And then, you know, everyone's going to be jumping up and down and screaming that, hey, hey, he was impeached, he was impeached. Yeah, but he's still in office, you know. And, and that is one of the things that Robert and I really touched on was it's it's about the power now. It's not about it's about their personal power and their party. The country comes secondary. And if you can't see that, you're an ostrich. Or you're just blind or you're dumb. And I'm not going to be nice about it. But you're just plain ignorant. And this, this, this self-inflicted disaster is exposing Biden's administration. And if you can't see that, then there's, there is no hope. You vilified Trump. You called him every name in the book. And we are seeing utter and pure incompetence on a scale that, hell, I don't even think Carter did this bad. Humanitarian efforts. And, you know, the other thing is the liberal MSM can't cover for them. But since they brainwashed their followers for so many years, if you go look at their posts on Twitter or Facebook, they still have their head in the sand. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing wrong because they were told that for four years. Well, now they're being told there is something wrong. There is something to see here, and they just ignore it. Absolutely ignore it. And that's what brainwashing does. You no longer have the ability to think clearly and analytically and logically. It's very sad. Oh, okay. As I said at the beginning, if you like the content, subscribe to it, $2.99, $5.99, $9.99. Right now, believe me, every penny helps. And for me, it is good information. I also have a GoFundMe. Uh, Jeff Dawson and GoFundMe, motivational speaker and author for hire, which I've really got to get on that. And I'm also an Herbalife 
distributor. And when people think Herbalife or anything like that, when they think ML, it's an MLN company or it's all about weight loss. Well, it's it's not, if you look, it's not a pyramid like they were back in the 80s. There were plenty of those pyramid schemes. You sign up as a distributor, you're going to make X amount of dollars per item that you sell. Yes, the people above you make money too, but they're making their percentage off of what is left. So if you made 35% on a sale, Herbalife's, you know, there's mark, there's obviously markup in this. It doesn't come out of your pay. And that's what people would say. Well, no, it doesn't come out of your pay. If I sell something for $40 and I make $10, I make $10. The people above me, they make their percentage. I don't know what that is. I don't ask them what it is. I just move on. But I've been documenting this on Facebook for two months. I got back on it. I do one shake a day. This is it. It's, let's say, cookies and cream. I like that flavor. I've got to try another one. And I got a little protein bar. So I take the shake, I take the protein bar, and I walk two miles a day. And in two months, I've dropped 12 to 15 pounds. I can almost see my toes. That's very exciting. I know that the cutoffs that I wear to walk I'm starting to have to think about getting a belt or something because they're getting loose. So it does work. I didn't get this in this shape overnight. They won't go away overnight, but it will go away. But when it comes to energy, and I'll, I'll say this right now, I can't take these products because I had blood clots back in 2011 after back surgery, and it just jacked my system up. I can't drink leaded coffee anymore, which Patricia will probably uh, – it's like, yeah, that's got to be rough. Well, I've learned to enjoy decaf because it's just like the flavor of coffee. But you got three ways to get energy. You got the tea, and we got various flavors. This one is raspberry. They've got citrus. They've got lemon, peach, and I forgot what the other one was. 45 milligrams of caffeine. That's the main thing in it. And then you have control pill same thing it's 45 milligrams of caffeine per pill and then you have if you really need to get jacked up it's called liftoff and this comes in lemon lime fruit punch orange and pomegranate and that is one of the biggest things that is i'm selling right now because these people really like it it gives them the burst of energy they need, and the main ingredients is 90 milligrams of caffeine, but it also has insonitol in it, which really stimulates the neurons and the sugars in your brain to where you're, you think more clearly. And the last item is it's called H3O. It's a hydrate. It's better than Gatorade. It's better than Powerade. I used to drink those all the time. But again, with blood clots, that has been a problem. 
it's really good stuff. And if I didn't think so, I wouldn't be selling it and I wouldn't be promoting it. Now, the website is jeff-dawson.goherbalife.com slash en-us. And that's on my, you can see that on my blog, lddjenterprises.com. Or you can go to my Facebook page and you can see the link there. And that way you can look at what you want. You can buy what you want because I'm not going to sell you anything you don't want. And that's one of my biggest sticking items is I'm not going to push something on you. You can go look at the products. You can make your own determination. And when you become a preferred member, then you start getting a nice discount on the stuff. When I was a preferred member, I was up to 30% off everything that I purchased. And that was nice because we all want to save money. And I am, my health, yeah, I know some of you are going, yeah, we saw you smoking. Yes, I'm working on that too. But to get back in shape, it's only costing me $2.60 a day. And I've noticed it's cut my grocery bill a third. And in rising inflation, that's a plus. So the products are good. Last time I did this seven years ago, I went from 250 to 205. And then I got a real job again and looked like the Goodyear blimp because these Oriental girls kept feeding me and feeding me. And I was working 12 to 14 hours a day and I wasn't exercising and it was not pretty. Let's put it that way. And I've also, if you're in the Dallas area, I've got two three-day trial packs. They're 20 bucks. It's got six shake mixes in it, and the flavor is, I think it's vanilla. No, it's cookies and cream. With one of the packs, you get the cookies and cream, and you get the total control. And the other one, you get the shake mix, and you get the tea. And I've got one of each. Where are we on time? We are just about done. This has been almost a full two hours. I hope it was informative. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you will support me. Remember, I'm also an Amazon author, Jeff Dawson. I write in just about every genre there is. My books are affordable. I will let, uh, I know some people have asked, well, just tell us when the book signing is and we'll be there. Well, believe me, watch for updates on Facebook since I only do this show every two weeks. It has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. And please support my work in whatever form it is, whether you want me as a speaker, as someone who wants to read a book or you want to get healthy got three ways to do it you all have a great saturday and i will talk to you in two weeks i am out i hope you enjoyed our time together i know i did without you wonderful listeners this show would not be possible 
If you want to know more about me and how my brain works, that's a scary thought, check out my books at jeffdawsononamazon.com, websites LDDJ Enterprises and jeffdawsonauthor.site for upcoming releases and teaser excerpts from past and present publications. You can also contact me at Facebook, LDDJ Enterprises Publishing, or email LDDJEnterprises at gmail.com or on Twitter at JeffDawson59. Have a great week and look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Dawson's Domain.